from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. On today's episode, we're continuing our segment on rural education during the pandemic, and I want to focus now on our local public schools. To get the most complete understanding of how our public schools are faring during these difficult times, I thought it best to organize our conversations from the top down. So today we'll talk to school administrators, and in the coming episodes, we'll sit down with both teachers and students from Sullivan County's public schools. But in the meantime, let's dive in. Today, we're going to hear from two district superintendents from two sides of Sullivan County, Dr. Matt Evans from Monticello and Mr. Steve Walker from Sullivan West. I talked to both of them about how their districts have adapted to a world with COVID, how their faculty, staff, and students are holding up, and what the pandemic means for our public education system going forward. So to start off, would you mind just introducing yourself and talking a little bit about who you are and what you do? I'm Matt Evans. I'm the superintendent of schools for the Monticello Central School District. I uh, took over this position in uh, July of 2020, just last year. Um, Monticello is the largest school district in Sullivan County. We have approximately 2,870 students in grades K through 12. Uh, And we uh, provide educational services for, uh, you know, a wide swath of uh, students and community members stretching from Wordsboro and Mamacating uh, all the way through uh, Rock Hill, the village of Monticello, the town of Thompson, uh, the town of Forestburg, and into the town of Bethel. As for the district, what is the system that you came up with for operating this year? So for students, uh, they are in one of four different cohorts. So there's two hybrid cohorts. There's a four day a week in-person cohort, and then there's an all remote instruction cohort, which is cohort D. So the first two cohorts, cohorts A and B, they attend in-person two days a week and have remote instruction three days a week. So cohort A comes in on Mondays and Tuesdays and are remote on Wednesdays, Thursday, Friday. Cohort B is remote on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and they're uh, in-person on Thursdays and Fridays. Cohort C is in person Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, and cohort D is all remote five days a week. So cohorts A, B, and C are remote on Wednesdays. And on Wednesdays, uh, our schools are closed to students and most of the staff as it allows our uh, plant operations and custodial staff to catch up on you know, regular maintenance and cleaning that it kind of uh, puts aside because it is so heavily invested in the daily deep cleanings that happen after school. So every day after school, uh, all of our uh, utilized areas are cleaned and disinfected disinfected pursuant to New York State Department of Health protocols. So that, you know, takes away from other work that they would have been doing otherwise. And we also found that Wednesdays gives a bit of a break midweek when we have students or staff members who test positive for COVID-19 because that look back period is 48 hours. So for example, if a, uh, a student or a staff member calls us on Thursday and says, you know, I, I 
tested positive for COVID-19 or became symptomatic on that Thursday, we'd only be looking at the students and staff they had contact with on the Tuesday. And it's not really two days. It's just kind of that one day. So it's been helpful in that way as well. So compared to other district superintendents in Sullivan County, I can imagine that you have sort of a unique perspective having jumped into this role in the middle of all of this, this past summer, what was that like stepping into your, your current position in the middle? It sounds like of the, the planning and, and the development of how this whole year was going to work. I had been uh, assistant superintendent at Fallsburg since 2006. And I've lived in uh, the Monticello central school district since 2001. So I'm very familiar with the area, uh, very familiar with, uh, you know, what the Monticello Central School District has gone through over the past 20 years. So that was a, a bit of an advantage for me, but not being able to get out in person and meet with a lot of people or in congregate settings, that was, you know, that hamstrung me a little bit. However, this new Zoom world that we live in, it also enabled me to you know, get out virtually a bit more than uh, I probably would have if I had to do everything, you know, traveling in person. And that's still true uh, through this academic year. I'm finding I'm getting into a lot more meetings with people virtually like this than if we had to set up in-person meetings and, and one or more of us had to travel. So, you know, that's not all completely bad. You know, we are able to reach a little bit more than what we had in the past. We're able to uh, connect with our community virtually a lot more than what we had in the past. The conversations aren't, you know, as, I guess, personal because there is this kind of separation across technology. But uh, we are able to uh, get to a lot of things that I think previously we would not have gotten to. What were some of the most unexpected challenges that that you and your team have had to find creative solutions kind of on, on the fly to this year? Well, we always knew that there was some type of digital gap, right? We knew there was some technology gap either um, in terms of internet connectivity or having enough hardware. But even with families that are relatively, I'll say, well-connected in terms of technology, there's immense strain there as well because there are only so many devices in the household. There is only so much space in a household. And uh, I know, you know, being the father of uh, a college student, you know, right now, uh, my daughter's online in college. My wife is uh, in an, another online meeting and I'm doing this. And uh, I think we're pretty well connected in terms of technology. And it's still, you know, trying to find spaces where we can do this meaningfully and uh, where we're not, uh, you know, interfering with each other's meetings. So that was something that, you know, was happening on a wide scale in our district, either by way of, you know, not having enough devices or not having the space or the technology to do it well. So what are... Uh, one of our elementary schools is doing Rutherford Elementary School, and they're starting that up. I think they either started it last week or this week, is providing teachers with extra time to connect with students on their hybrid schedule when they're home 
because those students might have other scheduling conflicts where an older brother or older sister or younger brother or younger sister is online at the same time as, as their math classes, for example. So I give a lot of credit to our, our staff members for coming up with those types of creative solutions to make those connections with kids and uh, to make them a priority. Um, it showed, you know, a lot of flexibility and kind of an open-mindedness on our part or, or you know, our staff members to, to come up with that. And I give them a lot of credit for it. Do you feel like there have been any kind of concrete takeaways about the necessity or lack thereof for that matter of, of an in-person education, you know, sitting in a classroom with one's peers and with a teacher there physically? I believe, and I think many of my colleagues in the profession would agree that in-person education is absolutely essential and there is no equivalent. Learning is very much a social experience. Uh, video conferencing at its best is, is kind of a high-end phone conversation. Now, that's, that's not to say, you know, learning can't happen here in this model we're in right now. It can. It's, it's greater than nothing at all, obviously. But it certainly pales in comparison to the in-person learning experience. I think that's, um, I, I think that's been determined uh, quite sufficiently over the past, uh, you know, six months of doing this work. Why do you think that is? We're social beings, right? We're social creatures. We, um, we can pick up on a lot more, not only verbal cues, but nonverbal cues in person. The teacher or the facilitator has the ability to, you know, move around and, and meet individually with, with, uh, with students to find out, to see exactly how they're doing on their work. Now they can do that, you know, if they really know what they're doing in technology, but, um, it's a little bit harder to reach and a little bit harder to manage that way than the traditional classroom. And I also think, you know, we've all, we've all been trained in that medium. We've all been trained to be classroom teachers, or at least everybody who's gone through the system up to this point has. There are a few who have learned about different apps for education and how to use this type of technology, but everyone who has a teaching license in this state has learned how to teach in person first. And all of those people, almost all of those people, have had most of their learning done in person in traditional classrooms. So that's, you know, kind of the, the water we swim in. And it's going to take some doing to, to one, to change that. And two, to find out what are, you know, what are the, the promising practices in remote learning that could make it an equivalent to in-person instruction. I, I still think we're far from that, but um, I'm sure those discussions are on the horizon. I think many of us were more optimistic about the promise of remote learning than they are now. Uh, it's worked, you know, for some students 
And again, as I said before, it's certainly better than no instruction at all, but I think most would agree that it's not a substitute for in-person instruction. And if there is one big takeaway, and I don't think it's unique to, to our experience in Monticello, it's that every student, every individual has unique qualities or unique motivations to them that cause them to, to be more motivated to learn than, than other times. So whatever the, the platform is, whatever the medium is, students still require motivation to learn. We all do, right? We all want to be motivated to do something, and then we tend to do it better than not being motivated at all. Remote settings, though, you know, they allow us to be a little bit more easily distracted or, or fake interest, if you will. So it's a facilitator's job to, to try to spark that motiva- motivation and maintain it throughout a lesson, even though the individual on the other end uh, has a distraction or, or something else that, that's taking their mind away from it. As superintendent in kind of the situation we're in, where, where schools have really quite a bit of autonomy with how they want to go about handling instruction and whatnot in, in New York State, from, from my understanding anyway, and feel free to mm-hmm. jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, okay. have you had to make any tough calls uh, this year about how something was going to work or where, you know, you really weren't sure about going down, down one path or another path with kind of the weight of the district behind you. Sure. So, um, you know, a lot of this goes back to the summer, the last August when, um, we were going through the guidance documents that, uh, the department of health and the state education department had put out and trying to figure out how we were to reopen schools. And, you know, at the elementary school, it came about fairly, I don't say quickly or easily, but it was pretty straightforward in terms of establishing student pods. In other words, there would be a a pod of students and kind of, you know, the teacher and some other staff members who would be assigned to that pod and it would be isolated for the day. There'd be a few more staff members who would roll in and out but the students wouldn't be going into other classrooms and you wouldn't be mixing up these, these classes. So in the event of a student or a staff member affiliated with that pod, if he or she tested positive for COVID, we would be able to identify the contacts and we would be able to isolate them and, you know, possibly just close off that room instead of closing the whole school. And we've done that on occasion at the middle school level. It got a little more challenging because student schedules started to change a little bit more. There were some different course offerings that happened at the middle school level than, than at the elementary level. So they were able to figure out some workarounds for that, that allowed again, for the pods of students. So they weren't mixing with other groups of kids and, you know, again, expanding that, that circle of contacts. But when we got to the high school level, we were confronted with decisions around that. And the decisions were, if we were to maintain the same course catalog at the high school level, meaning, uh, you know, college level courses, either through SUNY Sullivan or Syracuse University um, or other electives, other courses that, um, you know, students in the upper grades tend to take to kind of fill out a schedule or, or look good on a college application, if you will. And we were to also create these pods where students wouldn't be 
traveling and mixing, then there'd have to be some, some compromises made with how instruction looked. And so we recognize the need for in-person interactions and, uh, you know, wanting kids to, you know, maintain connections with the school. So we thought it important to have kids in school and not be all remote. However, we were not able to maintain the same, we would not have been able to maintain the same course catalog if we were to pair, if we were to keep kids in those pods and just have, you know, the math teacher come in and then the social studies teacher come in and the science teacher come in and so on, because it would have really strained our, our personnel. We would, we would not have had the, the human resource capacity to, to have them continue with that. So what that led to was, uh, you know, what our high school administration referred to as an overlay where students do come into the high school um, and they receive uh, their instruction basically remotely while in the school. However, there are teachers in that room uh, who do, who can and do interact with them about their work and how they're doing and, you know, provide some level of supervision. It also enables teachers to ultimately, you know, they can connect with kids if they're, if they're available at that day and at that, and the student is in at that time. That was a difficult call. And it was one that, um, you know, many in our community had a hard time grasping and understanding. And I'll admit I had a hard time grasping and understanding it in the beginning as well. But ultimately, we wanted kids to still have the opportunities to take, you know, those, those unique courses that motivate them, those unique courses that make their high school transcript look better when applying to colleges and universities. And if we were to do anything different, where it would have been more in person and we would have, you know, had kids limited to those pods, it would have meant we had to trim down our course catalog. So that was a difficult call. Um, and it was one ultimately that I had to, to support and back in order for it to go forward and to, to ultimately happen. Lastly, I want to touch on the topic of vaccines. Um, mm -hmm. Just before we started recording, you mentioned um, an interesting phone call. Would you mind just kind of rehashing what you had just yeah. learned about today? So about a half hour before we, we went on here, uh, I received a call from the BOCI superintendent, Dr. Dufour, who is the liaison between the school districts and Sullivan County Public Health in terms of scheduling vaccinations. He uh, told me that there are 100 vaccinations available for Monticello School District staff members and that they'll be available on uh, Wednesday, two days from now. And just as a heads up, that Wednesday was February 3rd. And what that means is I have to get a survey out to my staff and I just sent that out before we, we started recording here. And then they'll have to sign up in that survey and then we send them another registration link where they have to schedule their vaccination. So we're very grateful for Sullivan County Public Health and BOCES in terms of their coordination of it. And uh, on Friday, we had over 50 of our staff members from Cook Elementary School receive their first vaccinations. And uh, we'll continue through that as they become available. Uh, so it's, you know, it's just kind of one more thing to the mix of trying to, you know, manage and making sure that we're going about it equitably and fairly. And, uh, you know, we, we hope that soon any staff member of Monticello Central School District, any, any essential worker out there of other schools and, and uh, other agencies 
if they want vaccinations, that they're able to receive them. And, uh, you know, bit by bit, we're getting there. As as a, a last note, is there anything that you would want to say to all of the, the students in Monticello? Just know that we're all there for you, that we care about you, we love you, we want you to be successful, and that you have a great bunch of adults who are trying to make the best of a very challenging situation. And we will not be deterred in trying to do that and what's best for our kids and our community. And uh, we appreciate your patience. We appreciate your resilience. And uh, we hope to get you to get all everybody back in school soon, but we want to be safe and ensure that we're doing the right thing in doing that. listening to Close to Home from WJFF Radio Catskill. I'm Leif Johansson. We just heard from Monticello Central School District Superintendent Dr. Matt Evans in our ongoing segment on rural education in the time of COVID. And I want to turn now to the Sullivan West superintendent, Mr. Steve Walker. Sullivan West is a significantly smaller and more rural district than Monticello, though it's the largest school district in Sullivan County by the area it serves, going almost all the way up the western side of the county. That means that the school's response to COVID looks pretty different from Monticello's. My name is Steve Walker, and I'm the proud superintendent of the Sullivan West Central School District. I want to focus in on what it's been like being in your role during the course of the pandemic. So right off the bat, how are you and your team holding up? I appreciate that question. It's been a daily, at times, overwhelming challenge because we are not medical experts we're not infectious disease experts. And so we're being asked and have been asked on a regular basis for almost a year now to make decisions and answer questions that fall regularly outside of our sphere of expertise. So that inherently makes a person uncomfortable, especially someone in a leadership position who's used to um, making decisions that they know they can back with, with data, with science, with facts, with experience, uh, we have the data, the facts, and the science because we get them from experts. We don't have the experience in this area. And so for all of us, just like for every teacher, it feels like it's their first year in the classroom. For us, no matter how experienced we are as leaders, I think I can safely say for our team, it feels like it's our first year in a leadership position. It's been that uh, uncomfortable at times. <laughs> Could you talk about the system that Sullivan West um, settled on for operating this year, both, you know, at the elementary and the high school level? Sure. Obviously, it's entirely centered around the the guidance that all districts got from the New York State Department of Health, uh, from our county Department of Health, as well as from the New York State Education Department. And one of the driving mandates was that uh, students and staff be 
six, at least six feet socially distanced from each other at all times, or at least as often as, as possible. And so when you think about, of course, as a, as a former student yourself, uh, classrooms and schools are not set up for that kind of social distancing to take place. So one of the first things we had to do was figure out what does that do for our capacity within an individual classroom, within our gyms, within our cafeterias, within our buses. So everywhere that students would typically inhabit in large numbers, we now had to, to look at as, um, as space-related challenges. So that got us to a place where we very quickly recognized we didn't have the physical space to bring all 1,100 of our students physically into the school every day. And then we started to get into conversations around what makes the most sense for the greatest number of kids uh, within a number of, of different instructional options that we know are gonna be incredibly challenging to all kids. So our priority was to do everything we could to hold sacred, to hold dear the in-person classroom time. It's still our fundamental belief that that's where the most effective learning comes is, is physically in a classroom, in a learning space with, with a teacher, with other students. And to, to hold that dear, to do everything we could in terms of our scheduling to make sure that, that the quality of that in-person instruction remained at a top-notch level and then build in supports for our kids who then had to be learning at sometimes aspects of the curriculum from home because they couldn't physically be in the building due to the social distancing. Have you had um, thoughts or revelations in, in the last almost year now about the necessity or lack thereof for in-person instruction? Have you seen a major difference between how students perform when they're in the classroom or when they're, you know, at home and, and doing things over uh, like video meetings? Yeah, there's, it's absolutely reinforced for me how vital it is that, that students as learners and their teachers come together in person. Uh, what we've seen is you, there's just no way to replicate that connection over either synchronous live instruction is you know, the conversation we're having via Zoom or any kind of asynchronous self-paced work. Even a teacher videotaping themselves, teaching a lesson and then having students watch it later isn't the same as the ability to have that real-time interaction in person. And it changes the, the structure of the day for students to not have that necessity to get up and to get into school and to move through their day to be physically around each other. It's created challenges that I think no one could possibly have anticipated. And my concern is, has created challenges and a ripple effect that will impact schools and, and most importantly, kids for years to come. You know, there's a tremendous amount of work that's going to have to be done to support students as they come back post-pandemic. Uh, I think there are, there are opportunities for us to look differently at, at how schooling can occur for kids and how we can do better for kids. I think it's, it's created some really great conversations within our district around the curriculum and what aspects of the curriculum are the most vital uh, topics for students to engage in learning around uh, because teachers don't have the opportunity to teach the full span of their curriculum when they're not seeing their kids in person all the time. So. They've had to work incredibly hard to pare down uh, that curriculum. And I think there's some value in that. Uh, I also, it's it spurned some conversations in our district around 
the home environment for students because it, it used to be that that was an impact, sure, but the kids were physically here. Now the home environment has become the school environment. It's become the learning environment for so many kids, not only in our district, but throughout the country. And it's caused us to look very critically and start some conversations around, are there practices in our district that uh, unintentionally increase the predictability that students who come from home environments that don't support their learning are more likely to experience failure in schools? Uh, and I think the answer to that question is, is probably yes. There, there are some practices within any school system that, that perpetuate that kind of predictability. And, and that's something I think we have to confront as a school system going forward. You mentioned that teachers have had to change around their curriculums and pare them down. Has there been a significant change in course offerings at the school overall? No, we're still offering every course that we otherwise would have offered. Uh, and that was part of our commitment to our kids was we were going to try to provide as much of a, a quote unquote normal or regular school experience for them as we could. Uh, so we had, had planned on running a number of new electives this year, natural resources and social justice and, and courses like that. And we're, we're running all of them. Um, and we're excited by that. We, we plan to add to our electives for next year, uh, pandemic or, or post pandemic. Um, you, you mentioned in the beginning that, you know, you have the, the science and the data and whatnot, but right now you're, you're running on, um, all of this without making decisions based on prior experience. Do you see your, the, the nature of your role as district superintendent having changed since the pandemic started? In a lot of ways, yes. Um, it, it's become a lot for me about around modeling um, certain health and safety behaviors. And uh, although it's very uncomfortable for me, I spend a lot of time uh, on Zoom meetings because in-person meetings are, while it's where I'm most comfortable and probably most effective as a leader, I think any of us would be in person, it's not modeling the kind of behavior that we need to see from our staff, which is obviously if staff are getting together physically, they become exposures to each other. And if one of them were to get sick or test positive, you'd have a ripple effect in terms of how many staff members would have to quarantine. So we've tried to uh, communicate the importance of, although it's uncomfortable, having meetings via Zoom that otherwise would have been in person, whether they're department meetings or grade level meetings. So for me to model that means I have to spend a lot of time having meetings via Zoom that otherwise would have been in person. And, uh, and just, I think in general, the learning for me has been to, to adapt an approach, whether it's an approach to the instruction or an approach to how we're gonna handle the situation where um, a student or a staff member tests positive, adapt the approach, be confident in it, stay consistent in it, because as you know, there's been so much conflicting guidance, so much conflicting information, so much political uh, rhetoric and discussion that it would have been very easy to have shifted gears four or five different times as an organization. Uh, I think the thing I'm most proud of in our response has been that we have been consistent from the beginning. This is how we're going to approach things. We've not deviated from that, um, despite the fact that every time you make a decision as, as the superintendent, there are going to be folks who think 
fine and folks who think it's a terrible decision. Um, and, and so you, you have to live with that. You had to before that was, that was part of the job pre pandemic, but during the pandemic, a lot of these decisions have caused a great deal of frustration from parents and from staff. And, uh, you just have to, to learn to be okay with that and know that you're doing the best you can. As your approach as a district had to evolve and change as new information and data and science about the virus emerged? Sure. I think, you know, we've, we follow all of the guidance incredibly closely and get regular updates from, um, from our public health director and others. And you know, one of the things that we've come to learn as, as we've looked at the research is one, that schools are fundamentally a, a safe place for kids. There's very limited research that speaks to any kind of significant spread within the school setting. So uh, we're encouraged by that. We continue to share that information informally with each other to make sure that that, that messaging is out there. Um, and it's also allowed us to be very um, consistent and strong in our messaging that our schools are going to remain open until and unless they can't because of a public health directive or a large scale quarantine need. Um, I think that's been, that's been important learning for us. And the other learning has been that we now understand that the virus itself spreads mostly through person to person contact through um, airborne uh, particles and less on surfaces. So while we still certainly place a great priority on cleaning surfaces, especially high use surfaces, there's less of a concern now around a student passing a paper to a teacher and thereby passing coronavirus. You know, we, we don't have that level of concern that we did last spring. So it's allowed us to, to just understand the virus better and how we can protect people from it. any thoughts in the last year about the theory of how students are motivated to learn and to, you know, do their, you know, participate in class, do their schoolwork and whatnot, as we've been in this really unusual learning environment? Yeah, I thought actually a great deal about that. And it's, it's become clear to me that without the structure of day-to-day in-person schooling when without some of the accountability that comes from that uh, we lose a lot of kids unfortunately we have to do better and this isn't just Sullivan West this is I think almost every school anywhere we have to do better with delivering content that piques the interest of our kids that speaks to some element of intrinsic motivation for learning as opposed to just using grading as the extrinsic motivator to compel students to produce work. We've got to do better there. There are obviously, there are substantial uh, challenges with that. This is a, to a large part, a state mandated curriculum driven by federally mandated and then state mandated assessments, regents exams, which I know that you know well, uh, that drives too much of the curriculum and as a system, at some point, 
public education has to come to grips with that. That we've created a system where kids, by and large, show their learning because of grading and not because they're intrinsically motivated or interested in the content. That's that's become abundantly clear, I think, to all of us through the pandemic that um, without the systemic responsibility to be physically in class, eighth period, producing work, kids are not going to do it. That's, that's hard to say as a school district leader, but it's something I think we have to kind of converse with. On the days that students are in person in school, what are the safety conditions and, and precautions that are in place, both for students and for educators at the school? Sure. So um, from the moment that students get on the bus or walk into the building, they're all wearing masks uh, at all times, with the exception of brief mask breaks. Uh, all students are uh, have their temperature checked as they walk through the door uh, and go through a, a brief screening process to make sure that they don't have any uh, symptoms that could be related to COVID-19. Uh, and then, of course, when they are um, physically in classrooms, they're socially distanced. So you'll see the class sizes in many cases are very small. Uh, at the middle school and high school, there are limited opportunities for them to go to their locker because we don't want to have those, those congregate opportunities for kids uh, to come together and potentially spread COVID to each other. And you'll see that that's similar in the cafeteria, uh, in any athletic activity or extracurricular activity they're involved in. Everything looks different because students are wearing masks all the time and are, for the most part, socially distanced 90 to 95% of the school day. That's the same thing for staff. We've, As I've said, we've, we've encouraged staff, as hard as this is, not to gather together physically. So it has an impact on them where they used to gather in the lunchroom and, and have collegial and friendly conversations. There's much less of that now. Department meetings or grade level meetings, faculty meetings now occur via Zoom uh, because of that concern that one person could have uh, COVID in that room and then require the quarantine of a great number of them. Have you heard any time frame on when faculty and, and staff and administrators will be able to get the vaccine? Uh, we've been working closely with uh, the Department of, of Health in the county, uh, with Garnet, uh, obviously a local uh, healthcare provider here, as well as Sullivan County BOCES. And um, they've been working with us to schedule times. Sullivan West doesn't have any specific times yet, but there are other districts in the county that are currently having their staff vaccinated. I would hope that by the end of this month, uh, we see members of the faculty and staff here vaccinated. Last question. So if you could go back to February 2020, exactly a year ago, and have a conversation with yourself, what would you want you to know? I'd want, I'd want to be um, reminded of the joys of this job pre-pandemic. Uh, it's been much more difficult to find those moments of joy in the work over the past 10 or 11 months. And I'd want to be reminded of how great this work was pre-pandemic. I think for all of us in schools, uh, finding that joy, finding that happiness in the work has been a real challenge. It's been a real grind for everybody. So I'd, I'd want to 
remind myself of why this is such a great job. And it is. If there were students listening to the program, what would you want to say to them? I'd say to them that, that we're with you, uh, that we understand how hard this is, that this will end. There is a, there is a light at the end of this tunnel and we're going to be there, be there for them when, when this all ends as well. That, um, I know this can be an isolating time that I know that there's nothing about their world that feels the same. And I think some of them probably feel cheated out of parts of their high school experience, especially, and our, our hearts break for them for that. Uh, but they have a lot of people working very hard to make this as enjoyable as it can be for them. And that we're going to be there for them. We're part of this family with them pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and pandemic. Thank you to Mr. Steve Walker and Dr. Matt Evans for taking time out of their busy days to chat, and thank you for taking time out of yours to listen. I think it's interesting just how much autonomy our school districts have had in curating their response to COVID-19. Obviously, there were some state guidelines on health and safety, but both of the superintendents we talked to this week were heavily engaged in both the design and the implementation of their school structure throughout the course of the pandemic. Those structures, by the way, are really quite different from one another, as you heard. Monticello has several cohorts with an all-remote, all-in-person, and a hybrid option available, while Sullivan West settled on a hybrid system for all of their students. I'm curious if in the future we'll be able to look back at all of our public schools with their varied systems of operation during COVID and see patterns in student performance that line up with certain types of educational structures. For example, we might see slightly better student performance in aggregate across all the schools in New York State that opted for an all-in-person learning structure for the last year, or, or maybe from a certain type of hybrid structure, or maybe an all-remote structure. I suspect there will be some interesting literature on this in the coming years, and I wouldn't be surprised if our global educational community gains a lot of concrete data on how students learn and how we should be teaching them as a result of the pandemic. Both superintendents we spoke to, as you might expect, did say that this year has highlighted for them the value of an in-person, sitting in a classroom with your teacher and peers system of education. I can only imagine how much they look forward to coming out on the other side of this pandemic, but it's not just them. In the coming weeks, we'll talk to teachers and students in the Catskills and hear for ourselves what this last year has been like inside the classroom or over a Zoom call. We're also going to be starting a new segment on food insecurity in the Catskills coming up, which, as we'll hear, has always been an issue in our community, but was compounded by the effects of the pandemic, with more folks struggling to get the nutrition they need for themselves and their families than ever before. But until then, stay safe, stay hopeful, and stay engaged. Have a great week. This is WJFF, Radio Catskill.